0: Amen. You may be seated. Man, isn't God good? And we—that's not—that's not like a filler, you know. Sometimes people use those as a filler, but man, God is so good. Uh, I—I want to do something a little. I didn't do this in the last gathering, but I just want to do this, and He's going to hate I'm putting him on the spot. I just want to thank Jason here, Jason Wilson, leading us this morning in worship. Thank you, Jason. Man, he is. Uh, our worship pastor's out of town uh, on a little much-needed vacation, but I just want to thank uh, Jason for everything. He led worship Wednesday night for our worship uh, warehouse worship uh, group, and then he's leading worship this morning. He also made the video, and he only had about a week to do that for Nepal, and so just a thank you so much, Jason. I appreciate everything uh, you've done this week, man. That's pretty awesome. Uh, well, we're starting a new series this morning, and uh, it's kind of a peculiar way to start a series. In fact, the title is actually very peculiar as well. Uh, We'll get into that in just a minute. But I want to start this morning with kind of making a statement and let you think about this statement, okay? So here's the statement. Nobody starts their life out wanting to ruin it. No one sets out to ruin their life. Doesn't matter what season of life they find themselves in, no one sets out to ruin their life. In fact, I know that to be true because I've been at the beginning start of many people's seasons of life, right? So like I've had the privilege because I was a student pastor for several years, people for whatever reason wanted me to help them with their wedding. And so I've had the neat, unique opportunity to be right here and a, and a groom and a bride be like right here. In fact, it's kind of an awkward situation at times because you wind up being the closest person to the center of attention, right? The closest person to the couple. You got the wedding party on both sides, but no one is ever closer to the bride and groom than the officiant. And I've been across from many brides and grooms, and here's what I've learned to be true at every wedding I've ever done in that setting or really any wedding I've ever attended. No bride or groom sets out to ruin the marriage, right? Like none of them are standing there saying, yeah, Cross their fingers, this works out. Like, it doesn't happen. They are all in, right? There's this optimism about their lives together. It's the same way at graduations. I've been to several graduations and I watch people walk across that aisle and get their hands shook, whether it's high school or college, get that diploma. No one's sitting there thinking negatively at that point. It's all this optimistic, hopeful future Of things to come. I've talked to retirees before, people that are on the verge of retirement or just retired, and no one sets out to waste those years. Like there's always this optimism and plans for those years after retirement. Births, right? I mean, pastors go a lot of times and they'll go visit couples in the hospital that have just had a baby. And it's the best feeling in the world to walk in and see that father or see that mother just lit up, excited about the possibilities of this child. I've experienced that in my own life, right? I've got four boys, and each boy, when, when, when they finally come, it's literally like holding them and thinking, man, there are just so many, so many hopes, so many dreams I have for these kids. This optimism, this hope about what their life is going to become. And so no one sets out to ruin their life, no one sets out these negative plans about their future and yet so many people man so many people their lives are in ruin or even a season of life is is in ruin maybe they started well and and man they get to a certain point and it's just like all of a sudden it's like man they blow it like they just let their life just go and and the thing to think about there is why is that why is it that Everyone always starts out with the best intentions for their life and their future. And yet, sometimes for people, it goes south. It goes wrong. If you have your Bibles, turn to Judges chapter 13. Judges chapter 13. You can follow along there on the app as well. Um, My voice keeps going in and out. So I'm going to try to get through this today. I'm not about to cry. I just can't. I don't have a voice today for whatever reason. But uh, Judges chapter 13, last week... We talked a little bit about the story of Joshua and Joshua is a book all about victory. It's all about conquest. that go into the land and there's all this hope, right? This optimism for this new season in the life of the people of Israel because they're going into this land, they're going to conquer it and everything's going great. And then you get to the very end of Joshua and you find out things aren't as great as they seem. They are disobedient. They don't finish the task put before them. So when you get to the book of Judges, which is right after Joshua, man, it is a book of defeat. It is a problem that the people of Israel go through. They go through this cycle of being obedient to God and then falling away from, diso- from that obedience and start to follow idols and follow other worship and other gods. And then God puts them in a state of captivity. He tries to capture their attention by capturing them. By letting other people overrun them, they repent, God sends a judge, and this judge delivers the people of Israel. They worship God, the one true God, and and then down the road, when things get good again, they fall back away. And they do this 13 different times in just the book of Judges. So if you have your Bibles, Judges 13, we're going to start in verse 1. Again, the children of Israel, Israel, did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. So it's interesting. You see the word again, because this has happened several times before then. Now, the Philistines were probably the biggest enemy that Israel faced at this time. They were militarily, they were just outstanding. These were the first people to ever have battle formations in war, like the first people to ever come up with that. They were smart when it came to war. They were also very savage. These people were torturers, man. They mastered the art of torture. And so these are the people that God has allowed to fall for Israel to fall into the hands of. And so we have this going on. And in this book, in the book of Judges, we have this little story of Samson, the Judge Samson. And out of all the judges, there is more chapters devoted to Samson than any other judge in the book of Judges. And what we're gonna find with Samson's life and what's true about our own future is that the threat against what God desires, this is on your outline, the threat against what God desires for your future is not out there. You know what I mean by out there? It's not some outside circumstance. It's not the culture. It's not, it's not our government. The threat against your future is not out there as much as it is within that within, the greatest threat to your future is right here, is right here. And, and that's pretty interesting when you think about it. That when you look at the story of Samson, and you see the, the enemy here, the Philistines, right? That Samson's enemy wasn't the Philistines as much as it was himself. He was the greatest enemy of himself. He, he was his own worst enemy. And we've heard that before. And this threat that has the potential to ruin Samson's life and ultimately has the potential to ruin our lives, this threat is subtle and it's easy. And that's the reason for the title, How to Ruin Your Life in Five Easy Steps, because the path to ruin is an easy path to get on. It's an easy path. In Samson's life, we're gonna see this. So for the next Three weeks, we're going to look at this uh, five easy steps to ruin your life, and hopefully you'll stay away from that, right? Um, I will say this up front. Today, we are going to go through a lot of stuff, and so it's going to maybe feel a little bit like a Bible study, but don't disengage, all right? I want you to stay with me on this. So when we look at Samson's life, there are three things I want to talk about real quick to kind of give us context for Samson's life. And and here they are. This this is true for Samson, it's true for you. There's three realities about your future. Three realities that's true for every single person in this room when it comes to your future. Here's the first one: your future is determined by choices. Now that's a no-brainer. Most of us know that to be true, but it, it's, it goes, it needs to be said again. Because it's important. Your future is determined by choices. Like, think of the next 10 years of your life. That 10 years is going to be determined by choices. For for college or for students in the room, most of you, basically, once you hit middle school, the school system kind of prepares you for this. Most of your decisions from middle school on to college are all about decisions, mainly about College and career, those are your primary decisions. Am I going to go to college? If I don't go to college, what's my career going to be? If I do go to college, what's my career going to be? A lot of the talk generated around students is college and career. Then you hit young adult age or young married age. Young adults, man, the the choices are spouses, houses, and children, right? What house am I going to live in? Who am I going to marry or if I'm going to get married? And what are we going to do about children? And all the decisions for young adults and young marrieds, for the most part, most of those decisions are based, choices are based on those three things. For middle-aged and older people, uh, this, the the choices a lot of the choices are about health and wealth, right? How am I going to put away retirement? What's my retirement going to look like? How when am I going to be able to retire? Am I going to get that social security check? What? It's also about health, right? It's about okay. What decisions do I need to make so I can live longer, right? We. I mean, our dieting changes, our eating habits change. All this stuff happens. A lot of times, we're middle-aged and, and senior, senior adults. All of these are made up of choices and your choices are gonna determine the future that you're on. That's a no brainer, but it goes without saying, or it goes with saying. Next, God works in you if you choose. God works in you in, if you choose. Now think about this. We have access to God, right? I mean, that's pretty amazing when you think about it, that there is a God in heaven. That wants to pour out blessing in your life. Physical blessing, absolutely. But spiritual blessing, like God wants to bless your life spiritually. Like overwhelmingly, he just wants to pour all of these things into your life. But here's the truth about that. God has also given us free will. And here's what God will not do. God will not pour into your life those things unless you want them to. It's free will. He is going to allow it if you want it, right? And he's just standing there. For a lot of us, he's just standing there saying, all right, if you allow me to do this, I will do this. This is gonna be amazing, right? Spiritual blessings that he wants to pour into our lives and we will determine whether we'll take those or not. Every crossroads we come across, every temptation that enters our life, we are making the decision to allow God, allow God to work in us or to not work in us we choose that but then there's a third thing that's true about our future that and, and this is kind of this might take a minute to think about but i want you to get this god works through you if he chooses god works through you if he chooses now this is this is a little different than in you and here's what i mean by that god can use anyone Or anything to accomplish his purposes. God can use lost people. God can use saved people. God can use people walking right close to him. And God can use people running as far away from him as possible. You see this all throughout scripture. You see Pharaoh. Right? Pharaoh was a a guy who did not love God. Did not care about God. God used him. He was a pawn in the hand of God. God used King Nebuchadnezzar. And at the time, Nebuchadnezzar didn't honor God. God used him though. And God is going to use Samson. This is what we're gonna see in Samson's life, that the Holy Spirit of God will work through Samson in amazing ways. But in the end, Samson's life will lie in ruins because he never or very seldom allowed God to work in him. That God used Samson, absolutely. But very seldom did, God, did Samson allow God to work in his life and it ended up for Samson a ruined life. And the danger that we face, the thing that scares me the most about my life and it probably should scare you about your life is that just because you come to church or go on that mission trip, or lead that connect group, or preach that message, and even if there's a response, like even if people are responding, even if you're the best connect group leader in the whole church, or you're the best missionary in the church, or the best pastor in the church, or whatever, even if that's the case, just because these things are happening, just because God is working through you, doesn't mean he's working in you. And we have to be careful to look at that and say, oh, look at all these great things that are happening and be wrong and be not right before God. That there are many people that, man, they walk this path of being used by God, but they're not right with God. And the danger is that we can put ourselves in that category just because of the results of what we see in our ministries or what we see in our own lives. We have to be careful with that. And this is what we're going to see in Samson's life. So as we look at Samson, I want you to make sure that you don't disassociate from this character. Because it could be that God will reveal to you sometime this, these next three, three weeks a step or something in your life that, man, you're not allowing God to work in your life, and he wants to work in your life. He wants to save you from ruin. So look at the story in verse 2, chapter 13, verse 2. Now there was a certain man from Zorah of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Indeed now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive... And bear a son. Verse five: For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. Now this is context for Samson. Right? We got to set this up so you understand who who Samson's about and why what he does is wrong. Samson is a Nazarite. God consecrated him, God set him apart and said, this child, this man is going to be a Nazarite. Well, what's a Nazarite? Number six tells us what a Nazarite is. Here, here it is. One, do not consume grapes, any, any kind of grape product. So it's not just wine, it's Welch's grape juice, it's raisins, all those good things, can't have it. Two, don't cut your hair do not cut your hair. And three, do not touch a dead body. These are the three things that he was told from birth, don't do. Now, some of us think about that and we think, well, that's kind of silly, right? I mean, I can't have raisins, right? I mean, cut your hair. I mean, it's a good thing that you guys cut your hair. But here's the thing, Samson was separated. He was prepared for To do this task. And God had commanded this on his life. So for him to do these things was sinful. It was wrong for him to do them because he was breaking the commands that God had set in place for him. That's very important to remember because we're gonna see how he messes all this up in the coming weeks. So, Samson's mom gets to talk to this angel. That's who approaches. So then Manoah, she wants to get her husband involved. Then the angel visits both of them, Manoah and the wife, and visits both of them. They have some good talk. And then Manoah says, hey, why don't you stay and have dinner with us? That's what he says to the angel. And there's a reason why I'm telling you all this background information. He says, why don't you stay and we'll have dinner together? And the angel says, you know what, Just, just... do an offering, like like sacrifice an animal, and we'll do that. I'm not, I'm not eating, basically, is what he said. And then he says something very interesting that we got to point out because it's very interesting. Verse 17, then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord. If you have a King James or a New King James Version, angel of the Lord is capitalized, which that's interesting. What is your name? that when your words come to pass, we may honor you. So Manoah asking the name of the angel. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing that it is wonderful? Now, this is interesting, and this is kind of weird because no angels talk like this, right? This is not just some mere angel here. I believe, and, and many scholars believe this, that this is actually Jesus himself. Now, think about how crazy this is, and there's there's more stuff there in the passage, but look at when the angel finally leaves. Look at what, what Manoah and his wife say in verse 22. We shall surely surely die because we have seen God that even they knew that there was something here that was bigger than just some mere angel now think about this guys Jesus himself announces the birth of Samson 1100 years before Jesus is going to come to earth he is here talking to Manoah and his wife about Samson Man, what a rap sheet that Samson's got. That's pretty awesome. I mean, imagine if you were announced, if your birth was announced by Jesus to your mom and dad, how amazing that would be. So, So look at verse 24. So the woman bore a son and called his name Samson, and the child grew, and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, began to move upon him. So look at the bright future that Samson's got ahead of him, right? I mean, the Lord's blessing is on him. The Spirit of God is gonna move through him. And Jesus himself, 1,100 years before he's gonna come on earth, Jesus himself was here announcing the birth of Samson. That's a pretty good start to a future before the man's even born. And this is pretty interesting when you think about it, to look at the life of Samson and look even the life of Jesus and look at all the things that they have in common. Look at this side-by-side comparison of the two, Jesus and Samson, both were promised before birth. Both had miraculous births. Mary was a virgin and she had a son and Manoah's wife was barren and she had a son. That's pretty amazing. And both were seen as saviors of their people. So both of them have that, that unique story involved, Jesus and Samson. But there's also some things that are different. Look at this. While Samson's birth brought joy, Jesus's birth brought shame. Why? Because Mary and Joseph, no one thought for a second that she conceived him miraculously. Everyone thought they conceived out of wedlock And there was shame associated with Jesus's birth, but with with Samson's, it's a barren woman having a child, there's joy there. While Samson was a Nazarite, a position of honor and respect in this culture, Matthew 2.23 tells us that Jesus was a Nazarene, a group of people that were generally despised by everyone, like no one liked Nazarenes. And this is how it looks. I mean, when you look at those two comparisons, you look, Samson's birth brought joy. He was a Nazarite. He was honored, like, in front of people. Jesus' birth brought shame. He was a Nazarene. He was despised. Just looking at that conspiracy, uh, comparison, if you didn't know Jesus and you didn't know Samson and you were just looking at the screen, you would think to yourself, it looks like Samson's got the brighter future. Like, just based on what we see here. But this is where it changed. This is where it changed for Samson because while Samson almost always compromises. Jesus never compromises. Jesus never once compromised. And this is the thing that gets Samson in trouble all the time compromising his life. Samson delivered people by weakness becoming strong. Think about it the Holy Spirit of God would move on him, and then he would become strong and do amazing wonders. Samson delivered people by weakness becoming strong, but Hebrews 5 tells us that Jesus delivered us by strength becoming weak on a cross. Now think about that. That God himself emptied himself onto this earth for us and became weak for us. And while Samson begins salvation, Jesus... Complete salvation. What do I mean by begins? Look at verse 5 again. It says, Jesus is saying this about Samson. And he and Samson shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. Now that's a weird phrase. And the reason it's weird is because Samson is the last judge. He's the last judge in the story. How? Why is Jesus saying that he's going to begin to deliver Why is he saying it like that? I believe that Jesus had a purpose in why he said it like that. Because 1,100 years later, there will be a better Samson that will complete the work of salvation that flawed Samson could not complete. Now think about this, guys. We are looking at this story, and here's the truth about Samson. Samson is not someone we want to look at his story and say, I want to model my life after him. Like what we're gonna find out about Samson is that Samson's life serves as a warning for us, a warning of what a ruined life looks like and a promise of a truer and better deliverer that's to come. That's the whole reason we have the story of Samson, to point us to Jesus and to warn us about what that life looks like when we decide to follow the same path. And so we have this story here of Samson. So as we examine this, let's remember who we want to imitate. We're not here to imitate Samson. We're here to imitate Christ. So what are the steps that you see in the life of Samson? We're going to go over two today. The first step that you see in the life of Samson, and if you really want to ruin your life, here's the first step for you. Affirm your misguided entitlement. Affirm your misguided Entitlement. You know, entitlement is a pop word right now in our culture. You see it all the time. In fact, uh, two days ago, I was looking at an article. The message actually was already written, and uh, I came across this article on the website, uh, my news website. Uh, Put that picture of this couple up here. They're blurred out on purpose, but this is kind of an interesting story. This couple, there was a pregnant woman uh, who was riding a train and she had reserved a seat. Like she had paid for a specific seat on the the plane, okay? Or on the train. And this couple, when she gets to her seat, her reserved seat, this couple refused to move. They said, we're not moving. And then proceeded to not make eye contact with her the entire time. Now imagine that, a pregnant woman, she's noticeably pregnant, And it's her seat. It's not like they're giving up their seat. It's her seat that she had paid for, and they're not gonna give up. And so there's this big story about it and all this stuff, and all these people came to the aid of the pregnant woman. She wound up getting first class on the train, which was pretty cool, but they still didn't move this couple out of her seat, which I think's pretty weird when you think about it, right? And this is what the pregnant woman said about this situation. The last thing she said in the article was this one line. We live in a culture of entitlement. We live in a culture of entitlement. And it's true. It's true for, for this couple. And it's true, let's be honest, it's true even in some of our lives. Even in my life, it, it, I, I see this play out a lot. And this is how you know if you struggle with entitlement. Here's a few phrases. If you've ever said these phrases, <laughs> here's, you probably have some entitlement issues. I deserve this. I demand to dot, dot, dot. I earn this. I have the right to. You owe me. It's not fair. Like, if if these are some phrases that we either think about or say, chances are we struggle with entitlement. Here's another test. How do you feel when someone gets something that you wanted, but you don't have it? So you, you, your, your neighbor across the street, they finally get that new car and it's the exact car you wanted, like to the color and all, right? It's like, man. Or, or that, that friend of yours that gets that steal on a, on a brand new house, right? Like what does that do inside of you, those moments? Here's another test of entitlement. What do you feel when you're sitting in bumper-to-bumper traffic? Mmm, mm, that one hurts, right? I mean, I know what I'm feeling. I'm sitting there and the whole time I'm sitting there thinking, these people need to get out of my way. I got somewhere to be. What is that? It's entitlement. And man, this is a detrimental thing. It's so subtle. We don't really think about it a lot of times. It's subtle, but man, it has potential to wreck our lives. I was in Nepal a couple of weeks ago and man, I saw this play out so so heavily in my life. I was sharing this with my wife. Man, it's literally, we go to Nepal and I'm on mission. And, man, the whole time, like, I, I, I feel it. Like, I'm on, right? I, I don't complain a whole lot, uh, if, if any, really. And I'm just, we're on these bumpy, crazy roads, and I'm just, it, it, I'm either throwing up or smiling, right, you know? Um, I didn't throw up, thankfully, but there was a point I was sick. But even then, my sickness, I'm like, yeah, you know, everything's good, you know? I mean, we go into these places, we're eating things we don't like, and you just grin and bear it, right? Everything's great, nothing's bothering us, and it's the craziest thing. It's the craziest thing. Literally, the airplane wheels hit Charlotte and it's like a switch. It's like all of a sudden, all of that entitlement, all of those little petty small things, all of a sudden they come back. And I I catch myself. I'm like, what am I doing? Like, why is it that it doesn't bother me here, but it bothers me here? Man, Entitlement is a serious thing, and Samson is no stranger to this. He sees this in his own life. Look at, the story picks up in chapter 14. Look at verse 1. Now, Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. So he went up and told his father and mother, saying, I have seen a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get her for me as a wife." Do you hear the entitlement there? You know what entitlement is? It's an expectation that the world owes you. It's an expectation. Listen to that demand. Get her for me as a wife. Verse three, then his father and mother said to him, is there no woman among the daughters of your brethren or among all my people that you must go and get a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? Think about how big of a deal this is. Samson was told by Jesus that he was going to deliver or begin delivering the people from the Philistines and Samson wants to marry one. Like, look at the, how far the entitlement has taken him. You see, misguided entitlement always belittles our responsibility. It always belittles what we should do. I think about this all the time. Entitled people really, truly live irresponsible lives. There's, there's a young man that I know, he's in his, his mid-20s and um, he's an acquaintance. I don't know him super well, but I've watched him. He lives with his mom and at 25, which is fine, you know, if he's got a plan. But I watched this man, and he has no job. Something as simple as just cutting the grass for his mom, he won't do. And I watched this woman out there cutting her own grass, and the perfectly healthy 25-year-old's inside. That bothers me, and it probably bothers some of you, Right? But entitlement is not just that scenario that we automatically go to, right? It's also this idea that there are mothers and fathers that leave their families and their spouses because of entitlement. I mean, how can a father do that? How can a mother do that? There's retirees that once they retire, man, they squander the rest of their lives because of entitlement. It's a dangerous thing in our lives, and we see this in Samson's life. The end of verse 3 says, but Samson said to his father, he said it again, he said, get her for me, for she pleases me well. Another translation of that, that phrase there is that she is right in my eyes. It's interesting he says that because that's the very thing that we see all throughout this book of Judges. In fact, it's on the screen here. This is in two different places in the book of Judges. Judges 17, 6 and 21, 25 says, In those days Israel had no king. Look at the phrase. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. You see, Samson was a mirror for the people of Israel. They were the same thing. Everything that Samson was dealing with with his entitlement, it was the same thing that Israel was dealing with with their entitlement. And look at the destruction that it brought to Samson's life as well as the people of Israel. It was a dangerous thing. And here's what's really weird. If you want to see the weirdest thing of uh, this whole story, look at, look at the next verse. This, you had this little footnote in, in verse 4. But his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord. That's interesting. That he was seeking an occasion. God was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines. For at that time, the Philistines had dominion over Israel. Oddly enough, God, this is weird, God uses this. God was choosing to work. Remember what our definitions about the future were. God was choosing to work through Samson to accomplish his purposes. God is not working in Samson, but he is working through Samson. Now look at verse five. So Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother and came to the vineyards of Timnah. Now to his surprise, a young lion, this is not like baby Simba, this is a lion in the prime of his life, like a prime shaped lion, came roaring against him and the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him and he tore the lion apart as one would have torn apart a young goat. I guess they tore apart young goats a lot back then. That's just, that's a weird phrase. So he tears this lion apart And then it says he had nothing in his hand. That's pretty amazing. But look at the oddness of this story. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Isn't that weird? Why would he not tell his parents why he he tore this line apart? I mean, I would be telling everybody, right? You would too. Oh, we were in Kenya a few years ago and uh, we were, we, on the last day, we went on this little trek to see if we could see any wildlife and we didn't see a lion and I wanted to see a lion. So the next week, the pastor said, I'll send you a picture of a lion that I saw and here's the picture of the lion he saw. Look at this thing. That's crazy. Now, imagine a lion in the prime of his life. Imagine tearing that thing apart. I would tell the world, Right? <laughs> And some scholars that, you know, write about this say, oh, well, Samson was just really humble in this situation. Really? Like, that's not Samson's track record. Samson was never humble. Here it is. Why did Samson not tell his mom and dad? Here's why I think it is. Where is all this happening? It's happening in a vineyard, okay? Here's here's the thing. Samson is in a place that he shouldn't be. Why? Because he's not supposed to consume grapes. Now, is he wrong for being in the vineyard? No, of course not. It's not like that's the law, that's the Nazarite vow. But he's in the path of temptation. He's literally walking between the things that he shouldn't be eating. And he's walking in this path, and here's the thing, he knows it. He knows he's not where he should be. He knows he's in a place of compromise. You see, here's the thing about step two. Step two is a real easy one to ruin your life. And here's what it is. If you want to ruin your life, conceal your sin. Conceal your sin. Samson was concealing where he was because he shouldn't have been there. And because he keeps it concealed, he becomes trapped in that concealment that when we conceal our sin, it creates a prison that isolates the real you from everyone else, including God. That this is what, when we conceal our sin, this is what it does. It makes us realize that we are isolated. It makes us feel alone. It makes us feel like that no one really knows who we truly are because we had these secrets. Remember the story of David? You know, David, he, he slept with Bathsheba. He slept with another man's wife and then he had that man killed. And we see the story in 2 Samuel 12 where Nathan goes to him and, and, and you, know, you see David sitting on his throne and he seems fine, right? And then Nathan calls him out on the sin. And from that story, we're looking at David and we're thinking he's not even affected by this, right? He's just sitting there chilling out. But it, we actually have what David was feeling during that time. Psalms 32, three through four. This is, this is David talking. This is what he's talking about when he's talking about his sin. When I kept silent... My bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. That David's sin created this prison for him. That he was concealing it, he was hiding it, and it created this place where it isolated him from people and ultimately isolated him from fellowship with God. Concealing our sin, also, it facilitates the potential for more sin to flourish, for more sin to flourish. Look at Samson. He can't stay away. And it leads him further down the rabbit hole. He, he, look, he goes back to the same vineyard. Verse 7. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she pleased Samson well. This is the woman he's going to marry. After some time, when he returned to get her, he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. Where's that carcass? It's in the vineyard. And behold, a swarm of bees and honey were in the carcass of the lion. He took some of it in his hands and went along eating. When he came to his father and mother, he gave some to them, and they also ate. Look, but he did not tell them that he had taken the honey out of the carcass of the lion. Why? Because he broke his vow. The second time that he's in that path of temptation, what's he doing? He's touching something dead. He's touching something that God commanded him not to do. And this is where he breaks it, man. He breaks the vow that concealed sin facilitates the potential for more sin. And it gets bigger and bigger until it all comes crashing down. It's interesting, this is the world record back in 2009, I think it was, the world record for going from the smallest domino to the biggest domino to ever fall. Now, you saw it there, but that domino is as tall as the worship center. This building that we're in, it's as tall as that. Think about what brought that domino down. That right there. That's nuts, isn't it? Something this tiny, this small brought the big domino down. And here's the thing, guys, this is how... When we conceal our sin, this is what happens That when we conceal our sin We have these little dominoes of sin These little things that we don't think any, It really matters, you know that, that, that innocent Quotation mark, innocent flirt You know, flirting with someone Other than our spouse You know, that's, that's not that big a deal, Jonathan It's not like I'm, you know, going all the way or something It's, it's just innocent, right? Or maybe it's that money that we, didn't, that we didn't mark off on our tax return. That's, that's not that big a deal. This is just something small. You know, I, I, ain't any, I don't need to tell anybody about that. Or, or just checking out what's on the Internet. You know, I mean, it's not that big a deal. But this is how sin works, man. It's this concealed sin that we have in our lives, the concealed sin that we put in our pocket and that no one knows about. And that sin, man, it just continues and continues. And more go in and more go in and more go in. Until we have this ultimate domino fall in our lives. This ultimate path of destruction and ruin. And we're going to see this in Samson. And man, I've seen it in other people. I've seen it in other people's lives. That when we conceal our sin. For some of us right now in this room, and I know this is weird to talk about. For some of you right now, you're uncomfortable. Because there's something in your life that's not been put out there. And man, if you allow that to continue in your life, it's going to fall big. Concealed sin has serious consequences and has the potential for ruin. This is the start of Samson's life. And it didn't take him long to get off that path. So I wanna end with talking about really what God has because here's the thing. There are some of you in this room that man, you have just recognized your sense of entitlement. Maybe you haven't recognized it till this morning or maybe you're sitting in this room and you didn't think this was gonna get talked about today but you're sitting there with this concealed sin in your life. Man, what is God's desire for you? What is God's desire to take you off the path of ruin and put you on a path of redemption? What does that look like? Here's the solution. Step one. Instead of giving in to your misguided, your misguided entitlement, instead of that, man, recognize that you were born entitled. If you really want to know what you were entitled to, you were born entitled to death and hell. That is the ultimate entitlement of every single human being that's ever been born. That's where it all starts for, for them. And so if that's how it starts for us, that every breath we have as a gift of God and that we were destined for hell. How does that change and reframe the way we think about sitting in traffic? Ephesians 2 talks about this, and and this is such a great passage. A lot of you probably already know this passage if you grew up in church, but I love this passage. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's the enemy, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. I could easily say destined for hell, just as the others. And then verse four, best two words in all the Bible, in my opinion. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Think about that. When I'm sitting in traffic, when you're sitting in traffic, when you're thinking about what you're entitled to, what you deserve, what you are owed, man, if we could just remember, by grace, we have been saved. That what petty rights do I really have when so much has been done for me? Man, what, what rights do I really have? What am I really entitled to? I've been given the best thing I could ever be given. And maybe you're in this room and you haven't been given that. Maybe your entitlement still is death and hell. Man, God wants to give you something new today. And he wants to set you free. But for us that are on this path of ruin by thinking that the world owes us everything, the world owes us nothing. In fact, what we're truly owed is death and hell. But because of God's grace, because of the grace of God, we have been set free from that. It changes the way we think about entitlement. The other thing is this, step two, solution to, that instead of concealing our sin we got an old church word here. Instead of concealing our sin, confess. Confess. 1 John 1, 8 and 9 says this. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, I love that. I love that that's in there because this idea of confession, what does that look like? I, I, my student pastor for many years, Neil Perry, he, he, you guys might remember him. Man, he used to say this all the time. It was such a great line. He'd say, when we confess to God, there's forgiveness. But when we confess to one another, there's freedom. And what he was saying there is that for some of us, man, we've confessed the same stuff, those secret sins. We've confessed them over and over and over to God. In fact, there never, never were a secret to God because he knows everything, right? But the people that we're concealing that sin from are the people that need to know that sin and need to know what we've been dealing with so that we can get freedom from that, so that we can come out of that prison. And this is what I believe God has for us that we would walk free from hiding our sin, that we would walk free of all these earthly entitlements that we think we have. I love this, that confession is this idea that what you cover, here's the truth about confession, what you cover, what you hide, what you conceal, God's gonna uncover it. That's the nature of sin. It's like that last domino. Eventually, it's coming out. Eventually, it's gonna come out. So what you decide to cover, eventually God's gonna uncover it. But what you uncover, God will cover. And for some of you, man, that's, that's where we're at today. And I know this is a tough, a tough message and, and kind of a serious talk. And if you would, just go and bow your heads and close your eyes. I just, I wanna ask you there in the comfort of your seat to just maybe think about these two steps. Are these things playing out in your life? Is entitlement ruining you? Is hidden sin ruining you? Man, maybe everything on the surface looks great. Maybe people are coming forward. Maybe you got a great connect group. Maybe you just got off that mission trip. But man, this message is not just for you. It's for every pastor. It's for me sitting here, man that, man, I don't want my life to be ruined. It's great if God works through me, but I want God to work in me. So maybe that's you today. I just want us to have a moment of prayer, and before you leave, I I want you to find a pastor. I'm going to be up here at the front at the end of our gathering. There's other pastors around. Maybe you know a godly man or woman in the church that you want to talk to. But, man, don't leave today with just a bunch of information. Leave today allowing God to change your life because if it doesn't get changed, it will come to ruin in your life. So let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to hear your word. We thank you for the life of Samson, God, as flawed as his life is. God, we thank you for this picture Uh, uh, This warning of a ruined life that we don't want to follow But also, Lord, we thank you for the promise of a truer and better deliverer That's you, Jesus God, you are the one that has ultimately delivered us, God You did what Samson could not do And so, Father, we thank you for that, God I pray, Lord, if there's anyone in here, Lord, with concealed sin Anyone in here, Lord, that's struggling with just entitlement And thinking the world owes them, Father That we would just repent, Father That we would confess, that we would recognize God, what you've done on our behalf. And Father, that we would leave this place changed by your glory and your greatness. God, I pray that for every person in this room. And Lord, uh, at this time, we're gonna have a moment.